Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as these words take our minds back to this ancient setting and these ancient words, that you would take our hearts back, Lord, to embrace the same faith in your promises that Abram had. And Lord, even even more than him, given how much more we can see than he could see, how much greater should our faith be? And yet, Lord, we, we know that even with faith like a mustard seed, you're able to do anything because this is about you. So whether we feel strong or weak, would you help us, Lord, to look to you and to believe what you've said and that we'd be encouraged by that, that we'd be strengthened by that, that you'd use your word here this morning to equip us to live for you, to love others, to honor you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please sit down. We're going to get into today's passage without a whole lot of introduction because today is really a uh, just a continuation of what we did last week, where we were last week in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, and the setting for that was that God had, uh, or rather, uh, Abram had experienced, uh, through God, had experienced a dramatic military victory over this group of, of, of four kings from the east. And, and, uh, and yet, it's not hard to imagine him feeling quite vulnerable afterwards. And so we saw how God came to him at night to encourage him, to assure him of his presence and his reward. But Abram basically burst out that no reward God could give him would mean anything or make up for the fact that he still didn't have a child. What will you give me, O Lord? Will I remain carrying through to the end of my life childless? And after a dramatic conversation, or rather in a dramatic conversation, God brought Abram outside, told him to look up at the stars, gave him some time, and then said, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed God, and God counted that faith to Abram as righteousness. And we spent the final part of last week just considering this amazing good news that, that is at the beating heart of the gospel, that God counts sinners righteous by faith. And we today are, are saved by the same, by the same, in the same way. We are justified, counted righteous by faith, not because we've earned righteousness before God, but rather he credits that to us. On, a, on the basis of what Jesus did and through faith, he is the God who justifies. Now, in some ways, verse 7 and following are just a continuation of this, of this dialogue that began between God and Abram last week. And yet, they also have some markers of, of a very distinct second part to the conversation. There's a reason we divided up the passages this way. The topic changes slightly. So the topic in, in the first six verses was largely about Abram having an offspring. And the topic in, the, in verses 7 and following largely has to do with Abram and his offspring inheriting the land. So, so the topic changes slightly. But also, there's, there's a bit of a, of a marker here in verse 7 when, when the Lord says, I 
am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. That has the feeling of, of a fairly kind of formal introduction. And, and actually, in other documents that we have from this era, we see that introductions of a king would sometimes begin with this pronouncement. And, and so it has, it has a, the sense that, that we're moving in a, in a slightly more formal direction in God's conversation with, with Abram here as God makes this pronouncement. D- does this sound familiar to you at all? I am the Lord who brought you out. Does that sound familiar? Maybe Exodus 20 verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's actually a, 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 a way that God describes himself numbers of times. And here for the first time, he says to Abram, I, I am the God who took you out of Ur of the Chaldeans decades ago. That, that's me. And, and as he introduces himself, we're sort of braced for something a little bit more formal. But it's still a conversation at this point because Abram can't help but notice once again that God has given him a promise that, that he hasn't delivered on. God brought him from the land of, of the Chaldeans to give him this land to possess. And he still hasn't possessed the land. It's, he's still waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. And so Abram asks in verse 8, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How am I to know? You said you brought me to give me this land to possess. How am I to know that that's actually going to happen. Now, just wait a second. I thought that last week, I thought that last week we celebrated Abram's faith in God. Abram believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was believing. Abram believed God. And yet here he is, just like two verses later, maybe just minutes after the events of last week were reported, and God says, I brought you up to give you this land to possess. And Abram says, how do, how do I know? How am I supposed to know? How, how do I know that I'll possess it? What is this telling us? This is telling us that you can have faith in God and questions for God at the same time. This is super important. This is really important. I hope it's good news for you. Because I've heard some people give the impression that faith means never asking any serious questions about God. Never questioning anything you read in the Bible. Ever. That, that, that's, you know, if you've never asked any serious questions at all, that's the good stuff. That's where you want to be. And if you have read stuff in the Bible that you've questioned, or you've heard things about God that you've questioned, well, you know, you're quite not as good as the people who've never done that. Uh, I hope that's not true because that's, that's definitely not my story. I'm sure at one point or another, I've questioned absolutely everything that I've read in the Bible, everything that I've heard about God. And it's my questions and my search for answers that has led me deeper and deeper into faith as the years have gone on. Now, we want to be careful here. We want to be careful here, but we don't want to take this too far. This is one of those areas where we got to stay between the lines. Because in recent years, and some of you are going to be familiar with this, there are some, some people who say they're Christians that have really embraced this doubter persona and, 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 and almost brag about how uncertain they are about everything, as if that's some great mark of, of spiritual maturity for them, is their uncertainty. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is genuine faith that coexists, that goes along with genuine questions 
about things that we don't understand. And here's the important part. How can we tell that Abram has genuine faith? So what what does he do with his question? He takes it to God. Right? Verse 8 doesn't say, but Abram walked away and did a podcast about how authentic he was for questioning God's pr- promises. And he got the word doubt tattooed on his arm to remind him to always keep it real. Okay? That's not what it says. He, and I'm sort of making fun again of a bit of a thing that, that's been popular in some circles in recent years. No, what, what, what Abram does is he takes his genuine questions to God. Uh, Bruce Waltke in his commentary on, on Genesis said, says this, it takes spiritual energy of faith to complain in contrast to despairing in silence. Right? I, I, that's so true, right? It, it, takes, it takes faith to gather up your complaints and your questions and bring them to God. And, and again, just talking about myself, I've been through some profound, dark, long seasons of doubt in my life. But the greatest relief has come when I know that on the other end of my questions is a person who, like we just sang, is, is holding me fast. And uh, there's some, some wonderful examples of that in Scripture, like in John 6, when the disciples stay with Jesus, not because they've got all the answers to their questions, because they know Jesus. And uh, that's one of the things in the study guide this week you'll get to explore some more. Here's, here's what's important here. The difference between faith and faithlessness isn't whether or not you have questions. It's what you do with those questions, Faith takes its questions to God because it knows him. It knows who he is. It knows he's, he's big enough for them. And that's what Abram's doing once again here in verse 8. He's got questions, and he takes them to God. How do I know, O Lord, that I shall inherit it? So how does God respond? How does God respond to Abram's question? How is God going to assure Abram that, yes, he is going to inherit the land? Well, verse 7 has already tipped us off. Remember at the beginning here that that, that we're moving in a a more formal direction. And that gets very clear in verse 9. What's God's answer to Abram's question? Bring me some animals. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old she-goat, a three-year-old ram, and two birds. Now, if, if, if we're just picking this verse out and, and we, don't, um, we don't take some time to think about it, this, this seems rather bizarre, right? It's like you're having a conversation with someone. Well, how do I know you're going to do that? Go get me an animal, right? It just it, it doesn't really seem to make sense. But what we're going to see here, this is actually an incredibly solemn, profound answer to Abram's question. God is inviting Abram to participate here in an ancient covenant-making ritual. Now, this is well-known in the ancient world. This is one of the things archaeology has helped us out with. We've got records of similar kinds of things happening all over the place. We see at least one other place in the Bible, something similar happening, Jeremiah 34. And we we know that this is a well-known ritual, Because as soon as as God tells Abram to bring him the animals, Abram knows what to do. In verse 10, he brings the animals and he just does the next thing. He cuts them in half. God didn't have to tell him to do this. He just knew what to do. He begins the bloody work of, of killing and then dismembering these animals, cutting them in half. 
Verse 10 says that he laid each half over against the other. That's a bit of a clumsy way to, to, to render the Hebrew here. The, the, a few other translations, like the, the NASB is, is a little bit uh, more clear when it says he laid each half opposite the other. Okay, that's, that, that's a better way of, of understanding what's happening here. And like, like we've seen here, like I've just mentioned, this is an ancient covenant-making ritual. And here's what would happen. When two parties in the ancient world wanted to make a covenant with each other, a binding covenant, they would take an animal or several animals and they'd dismember them. It might be cutting off the head of, of a lamb or, or a donkey, or it might be cutting the animals in half, like we see here. And they would set them on either side of, of an area. And then together the two parties in the covenant would take just a little walk between the parts of the animals. The ground in between the animals was likely very wet with blood, as anyone here who's ever cleaned a deer can tell you. And and this is why some modern authors refer to this as a blood path ceremony. That language isn't used in in, in the ancient world, but it, it gets at what's going on here. And what's going on here, as they walk between, as they walk between the animals, here's what they're saying. They're saying, let this happen to me. What happened to these animals here, let that happen to me if I ever break this covenant. So we're making this covenant. If I break this covenant, you can do this to me. And we know this because, again, in, in some documents in the ancient world make this very clear and very gruesome. I won't read you some of them. Like, may my guts spill over my feet like the guts of these animals, you know, if I break my covenant with you. It's very clear and very, very bloody. It seems strange to us, but this is, this is very common. So much so that the, the, the phrase in Hebrew for make a covenant... Okay, and every time, at least in the ESV, every time you see the phrase make a covenant, literally what it is in Hebrew is cut a covenant. Cut a covenant. I will cut a covenant with you. That's what the phrase that we're actually going to read in a little bit here. I, I've cut a covenant with you because that's how you made covenants. You cut up an animal. That's how you did it. To say, if I break this covenant, do this to me. So you're putting your life on the line. And giving the other person the permission to kill you if you broke the covenant. So this is way more than to death do us part, right? This is like part me in death if, if I break this covenant. Serious business. They, you, they, you are giving yourself the death penalty. Abram knows this. So do you think Abram's gulping here? Like things are getting real. And they're about to get even more real. But before then, it's very interesting as he's, he's, he's cut the animals and he's set the parts opposite each other. There's even p- perhaps, there's some things in Hebrew we don't fully understand, but there might even be this suggestion in the original that God actually set his half on the one side and Abram set his half on the other. Verse 11 says that when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This is interesting. Uh, birds of prey, probably here is, is like, like a vulture or carrion bird. Like they see the dead animals and they're swooping down to, to eat them. Now, some people, uh, they make this very symbolic, like, uh, 
the animals represent the Abram's offspring and the birds are, they represent like Egypt and Abram is chasing them away. I'll be honest. I, 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 I don't, I, it might be true. Um, I'm not so sure, but here's what's, here's what's pretty obvious here. Uh, Abram's waiting for God again. Do you see, do you see that? Okay, Cause typically what happened if I was making a covenant with you, we'd take our sheep or our donkey or whatever, we'd chop it in half, spread it out. We'd take the walk. And then afterwards, presumably we'd, you know, have a feast and we'd burn half and eat the other half or something like that. Here, God's told Abram what to do. So he went ahead, he took the animals, he cut them in half and he's waiting so much so that birds are coming. He's saying, no, no, get out of here. We haven't done this thing yet. Does Abram know what's going to happen? How is God going to show up? Like what's, what's, what's going on here? There's some mystery. But once again, just like so many other times in his life, Abram is waiting on God, waiting to see what God's going to do. God hasn't shown up yet. Now, I, I, I haven't been drawing attention to our outline here, but what, as, we, as we look here, we've just looked at the animals. Now we're going to look at the presence in verse 12. Verse 12 says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful, terrifying, and great darkness fell upon him. This sounds weird. Like this whole passage sounds weird. I, I grant you that. Now what I'm trying, what we want to see here this morning is it's not, but it sounds weird. Um, when you see something weird in the Bible, something that can, can be really helpful is to ask, have I seen this before? Even something that doesn't seem weird, just ask, where have I seen this before? Where's the last time in the Bible we've seen someone falling or, 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 or being handed over to a deep sleep? Well, it's Genesis 2.21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep, same words, to fall upon the man. This is with Adam, when God was going to make Eve, he caused a deep sleep. So, so, the, so we already kind of have this idea that once before, God has caused someone to fall into a deep sleep before he does something important. Okay, why is this important? Because it's showing that God is the one doing this. Adam didn't participate. You know, oh, here's my rib. You know, no, he was knocked out and God did it. Similarly, God is putting Abram in a spot here where God is going to do something. Okay, that's, that's going to get very important here in just a moment. Um, now, it's very interesting. It says uh, a, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Well, is he asleep? Is this happening in his dream? Uh, it, it sure doesn't sound like some things in a moment here happen in a dream. So th- there's some mystery here. There's some mysteries to what's exactly going on. And that's probably important. I mean, we're talking, we're talking about an encounter with the living God. We should expect this doesn't fit neatly into our little categories. This is, this is mysterious and bewildering. But a dreadful and a great darkness fell upon him. Dreadful, similar word in the original to like terror. Abram's terrified. That's what happens when people encounter God. That's why he... He has to say, fear not. When God shows up in all of his unsettling glory, terror strikes the hearts of the people that he meets. 
And then we see here darkness. Now that might seem strange again, but uh, this is another image throughout the Bible that's connected with the presence of God. Think of the smoke on Mount Sinai. Uh, Hebrews twelve eighteen describes that Mount Sinai seen as darkness and gloom. Uh, Psalm eighteen eleven says that He made darkness His covering, His canopy around Him, thick clouds, dark with water. This is one of the ways that God shows that he is showing up in a special way. God is everywhere, but there are times when he makes his presence really felt and known in a certain place. And, and, and these are some of the clues, terror and darkness. That's what's happening here to Abram. Abram's terrified. This is a good reminder for us, right, that, that we shouldn't be so glib to say, well, I want to ask God this or that as if we can just march into his presence and demand answers from him. Abram asked God a question. Abram's getting an answer from God, and it's a terrifying experience. This is a good reminder about the importance of the fear of the Lord. Our third step in this section is the future, verses 13 to 16. This is the part where God speaks. Abram's been wondering about inheriting the land. And here God gives him the full story. Here's what he says. Your offspring, so he's going to have offspring, are going to go live in another land where they're going to be afflicted as slaves for 400 years. 400 years. But, says verse 14, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Now, we know these are fulfilled, these words are fulfilled to the T in the exodus from, from Egypt. And that's what's going to happen to Abram's children. That's, that's how this land is going to get inherited. What about Abram himself? Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. He's going to be untroubled by this these events in another land. In fact, it's interesting, it's about 200 years before they actually go to Egypt, before Joseph and and Jacob go down to Egypt. But then in verse 16, Abram finally gets the answer to the question. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, generation is a word. It can mean lifespan. So that fourth generation could be fourth period, which again is these 400 years. And so here, Abram finds out when this promise of the land is going to get fulfilled. Not for centuries. Do you think think his breath got taken away? Like he had no idea. Centuries from now. And he also gets the answer of like, why the delay? Why is there going to be this delay here? Well, the answer is judgment. The Amorites, which is a word just for the people who lived in the land at that time, they were wicked, but they were going to get a lot more wicked. And then God was going to judge them. And God was going to use the people of Israel to do that judgment. Now, we read about that in, in, and we studied that as we studied Joshua together a year and a half or a couple years ago. Abram's offspring are going to grow into a nation, suffer many things, and then be an instrument of God's judgment, both on their oppressors in Egypt and then to these inhabitants in Canaan. So this is really important for a couple of reasons. First, 
this is making it very obvious, and we need to repeat this because some people today repeat the opposite too much. Israel taking the land of Canaan was not an act of genocide. The Canaanites were not being driven out because they were Canaanites. Okay, that would be genocide. It was all these dirty Amorites, get rid of them because they're Amorites. That, that's not what this was. They were being driven out because of their wickedness. It was judgment on their sin. And God specifically told his people that if you start doing the things that the Amorites and the Canaanites did, I'll drive you out too. Right? Leviticus 18, 24 to 28. He says that. You do these things, you're going too. And that's what happened, right? In the exile, when the Assyrians and the Babylonians came in. So, so once again, this is not about getting rid of the Canaanites because they were Canaanites. This is about their sin and God using Israel as his instrument of judgment. Now, there's a second reason why this is really important. Why is it important for God to do things this way? Why not just bring Abram into the land, promise it to him, and Abram stays there? And he gets more and more kids, and they slowly take over more and more territory, and they slowly push out the other nations, and after a few hundred years, they've got the land. Why not do things that way? Why take Abram to the land, make him this promise, that he's not going to see, and in fact, no one's going to see for over half a millennia. Take his people to another nation, let them develop there as slaves, then take them out in a miraculous way, take them back into the land, use them as an instrument of judgment, take over. Like, why do things this way? Well, because who else but God could do things this way, right? If, if he just took Abram, brought him to the land, and let it happen naturally, well, that's just how things happen. But God is doing it this way to make a name for himself. And that's what we see over and over and over again as God explains this in the Old Testament. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. And as he explains again and again, that you may know that I am the Lord. Think of uh, 2 Samuel uh, 7 verses 22 and 23. Who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth. The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. Do you see there just the people worshiping saying, God, who else have you done this for? Look what you did. And that's the whole point. God is doing this with Israel so that his people Worship him so that he gets the glory and so that everyone knows he is the Lord. Nevertheless, I wonder how hard this was for Abram to swallow. He's going to die in faith. He's not going to see this. And that means that he's going to have to trust that God is going to keep his promises. He's never going to see it. You ever felt that way with someone? Oh, Sure, I believe you, but I kind of want to see you do it. I want to check your work. You do that at the fast food restaurant. You open up the bag to make sure all your food's in there, you know, because they say, here's your order. Okay, I know you mean well, but Abram had no option for that. He was going to die in faith. He's going to spend the rest of his life a foreigner in the land, and he is not going to see this with his own eyes. It's not going to happen until 
and, and I counted here, his children's, 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 children. So what good is this promise from God? What does this mean to him? Does this mean anything? Isn't the question, how do I know, still hanging in the air? And the answer to these questions hinges on God and whether God is reliable or not. And God proves that he is reliable by binding himself to Abram and to these promises in the most solemn, serious way imaginable. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Smoke and fire moving through the wilderness. What do you think when you hear that? What do you think the Israelites thought as they read this for the first time? What's going to come to their mind? And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is the presence of God, and the, and, and the Israelites would know it. Smoke and fire, like that's God. And so God passes between the parts of the animals to formalize his promise to Abram. God is saying, okay, don't miss this. God is saying in the language of the day, cut me in half if I don't keep my promises to you, Abram. Abram can know that his offspring will keep will, that his offspring will inherit the land that God will keep his promises because God is literally putting his life on the line to make sure that these promises are kept. And after doing this, verse 18, God formalizes his promise to Abram and speaks it. On that day, the Lord made on that day, on that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, so that there will be offspring, to your offspring, I give this land, or perhaps better, I have given. And that some translations do it, and that's actually more, more uh, accurate to, to the Hebrew here. To your offspring, I have given this land. It's a done deal. And then he defines the land two ways. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he says, who's all there? The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now you know why we didn't read those verses together at the beginning of our service. But that's who was living there. Now, we got to think this is really important here. God says, I've given this land to you, and it's from the river Euphrates to the river of Egypt. Now, there's some... Uh, debate over what does he mean by the river of Egypt. There's a few rivers there, but here's the broad strokes, okay? Let's, let's remember something here about the ancient world. There were two major centers in the ancient world, two major hubs of civilization. You had Egypt, and you had Mesopotamia, where the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers were, okay? Egypt and, we could say, Babylon. Babylon's over there. Assyria's over there. These are the two major, major places where stuff was happening. And in between was basically desert, except for, it was all desert, except for a thin little stretch that went up 
the side of the Mediterranean Sea. I probably should have put a slide up here. But you can look it up. You've got, you've got maps in your Bible. So you've got Egypt, Mesopotamia, Babylon, Assyria, and in between, the only place they can pass is this thin stretch up the coast of the Mediterranean. And that's the spot that God gives to Abram. You see why it's important? All of the trade between these two powers, all of the communication, all of the commerce, everything has to pass between this land that God gives to Abram. Peter Gentry, Stephen Wellam wrote that in modern terms, Abram and his family are to be settled along the central spine of the internet in the ancient world. All of the communication, commerce, and trade back and forth between Egypt and Mesopotamia will pass through Canaan. God calls Abram to be a light to the nations. This is the beginning of his method and plan to bless all the nations through Abram and his family. He puts them at the crossroads of the ancient world that all the world, as they pass through the land, see and see who God is and see what it's like to live in relationship with God. Now, we saw a few weeks ago, this piece of land was just the start. Okay? In the Old Testament already, there's a, there's a global vision. And, and Paul speaks about Abram being heir of the world. And according to Hebrews eleven sixteen, Abram was actually seeking a heavenly country all, all the way along. So we should understand that this land of Canaan that God promises to Abram is just, is just the down payment on what will eventually be the whole new creation, where God's people dwell with him forever. As in Christ, remember, in Christ, these promises grow to reach their true fulfillment. But at this point, God gives them, as it were, a down payment, that specific spot of land for that specific stage in the story, and he says, this will be your offspring. This will belong to your offspring. So, we've walked through this passage We've seen some incredible things together. And and yet, I want to suggest that we need to just take one more look at what I think is the most incredible aspect of this passage. God passes between the animal parts. And even more specifically, God passes through the animal parts between them Alone. So do you remember how we said, in, in, we looked at how these ceremonies would work? And if you and me were doing that, we'd cut the animal and we'd walk through together. So I'm saying, if I break the covenant, chop me in half. You're saying, if I break the covenant, chop me in half. God does not walk between the parts with Abram. God passes between the parts by himself. In other words, he's saying, let this happen to me if I break this covenant. And let this happen to me if you break this covenant. He's taking it all on himself. He's taking responsibility for both his end and Abram's end of the covenant. Isn't that incredible? Not because we're afraid of God keeping his covenant. 
But we should be afraid of Abram keeping his covenant. Haven't we seen through the book of Genesis up till now that, like, have there, has there been any faithful humans who have perfectly been faithful all the way through? Not one of them. We've been disappointed again and again and again. And, and think, God hasn't even told Abram about his part in the covenant. Think about that. He tells him in chapter 17, which Josh is going to preach on in a couple of weeks, you know what Abram's responsibilities in the covenant are? You know what God tells Abram in this covenant? Here's what you need to do. Chapter 17, walk before me and be blameless. Oh, just being blameless. That's all. That's all Abram has to do. Okay, walk before me. That's what like, uh, like a herald would do before a king. So like represent me, be my ambassador, and don't do anything wrong. That's, that's a, a, a way that we could sum up Abram's responsibilities in this covenant. Uh, again, Stephen uh, Wellam and, and Peter Gentry. God is calling Abram to be morally blameless and impeccable, honest and sincere in the covenant relationship. How's Abram done with that so far? How has Abram done with being morally blameless and impeccable? Uh, how did Abram do in Egypt? How did Abram represent God there? How's Abram going to represent God in the next chapter when he gets Hagar pregnant and then lets his wife treat her so badly that she runs away into the desert to die? How's, how's Abram going to do that with Abimelech, who he also once again lies to about his wife? Abram does not have a great track record of blamelessly representing God. And again, he's a man. He's a man. I mean, we know what what he's capable of and what he's going to do because we know men this far in Genesis. And yet here's God before he's even told Abram what his responsibilities are entering into a covenant where he says, I will die for your failures, Abram. Let that take your breath away. This is so astounding This is so astounding that it makes some people who study Genesis say, it can't mean that. It can't mean, because how how is God going to die? How is that possible? Do you know how that's possible? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for in the place of instead of sinners and the death penalty for Jesus was sealed this night in Canaan as the presence of God passed between the animal parts and said, kill me for your failures. This is where you sign the death penalty for Jesus. And so Abram got to walk in covenant with God because Jesus was going to suffer for Abram's failures. You and I get to walk in covenant with God because Jesus did already suffer for our failures. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, 
much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That's Romans 5, 9 to 10. Anything that could get in between you and God has been dealt with and paid for already on the cross, 100%. And, and, and promised, I mean, it was dealt with before you were born, 2,000 years, and promised another couple of thousand years before then. Do you see how big this is and how long this has taken God to get up to this point? Anything that could get between you and God has been dealt with as the Son of God was tortured and nailed to a bloody cross like one of those pieces of animals back in the wilderness. And he did it for you keeping his promise when he cut that covenant with Abram. So be amazed by this, people. Has anybody else ever loved you this way? Has anybody ever loved you this way? Aren't we so used to people trying to pass the blame and the buck onto us? Aren't we so used to people trying to throw us under the bus? Some of you know what it's like to have people come and dump their problems on you or accuse you of being the bad guy when you were just trying to help them. You were trying to do the right thing and you end up suffering. And here's Jesus who with eyes wide open knows everything we're going to do against him and takes our debt onto himself and promises it all the way back here. And I mean, we know it goes back before then into eternity, right? He did it anyways. There's nothing you can do to shock Jesus because he sees everything that you have, will do, and are capable of doing apart from him. And knowing that, he walked between the pieces, knowing that he went to the cross. You can't shock him. You can't surprise him. You can't out-sin his love because he did it all for you, knowing all of this. I was talking to someone this week who was just gobsmacked by this, and they, and they said in different words, they said, why in the world would God show love to me? And that's exactly it, because he's love, because that's who he is, because he delights to save. That's who he is. He loves, and he delights to love by saying, I'll take your penalty. I'll take your debt. I'm going to pay for it. Be amazed by this. Ask God to help you not get used to this, to not get bored of this. Ask God to help you love this. And then guess what? Guess what? As today we take up our own crosses and follow Jesus, we do so knowing that we're following someone who loved us extravagantly, and we get the privilege of showing that same extravagant love. Right? See, we can't just stop at what Jesus did for us. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We love John 3.16, right? Do we love 1 John 3.16? Christian love is messy. It's messy. Christian love means walking with people through some really messy stuff. It means allowing ourselves to be affected by problems that we didn't cause. It means helping people carry burdens that we feel like we could do without. It means that, that we don't say, that's your problem, you got yourself into that mess, you deal with it yourself. No, it means we lay down our lives for each other. That's the love that we've been called to show to each other. And what's the measure of that love? It's a God passing between the animal parts to say, I will pay for your failures. And it's a son of God hanging on a cross saying, I am paying for your failures, and it's finished. 
So you want to know what to do with this passage this week? I, I wrestled over this so much of just, okay, how, how, do we, what, what, how, how do we land this? Here's, there's all kinds of ways that you could land this, but, but here's where I want to encourage you to land this this morning. Would you pray? First, would you pray that you would taste afresh the wonder of a God who pursues you so that he can pay for your debts? Would you ask God to help you taste afresh just how incredible that is? A God who says, I'll die for your failures. And then would you pray that God will free your heart to follow behind Jesus, getting your feet bloody as well in a life of self-giving love for your brothers and sisters, willing to say to them, I too will suffer for things that I didn't bring on myself, but I'm going to do it to love you because that's how Jesus loved me. We're going to take a moment to be quiet before we sing about the victory of Jesus. And I'm going to pray for us before we do that because we need him so bad in these moments. Oh Lord God, I'm praying by your Holy Spirit you would help us to taste the wonder of a God who takes our sin onto himself. I pray you would help us to taste the wonder of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by taking it onto himself. Would you help us, Lord, to taste the wonder of saying, me, you, you did that for me? And to know that you did it because you love. Oh, Lord, would you help us to taste the privilege of getting to show that same love to our brothers and sisters in a needy world? As we see your bloody footprints, oh, Jesus, help us to follow with joy. Thank you, Jesus, so much for laying your life down for us. Amen. We'll take a moment or two on our own and then the team will come up.